Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, as my brothers have prayed already, we thank you for the fact that, Lord, no matter what is taking place in our world and the difficulties and the challenges that we see and that we face, even individually and corporately as Christian churches, that you are worthy to be magnified. You're worthy to be worshipped. And this morning is all about you. It's about bringing glory to you through genuine, heartfelt worship, worship in spirit and in truth. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to be able to remove distractions by your grace, to set aside those things that are worries and concerns, and to cast all anxieties upon you because you care for us. Father, we pray this morning for those of us in this body who are hurting, whether emotionally, physically, spiritually, Father, experiencing trials. Lord, it seems like it's one trial after another for so many of your people here in the body. And Father, I just pray for your sustaining grace that you would, Lord, give us an added measure of of a sense of your presence, that you love us, that you care for us, that you're here to encourage us, that you're here to convict us of our own sin, that we would be dependent upon you. Father, we pray this morning that you will remove distractions from us, that you would help us to focus on your word, that we would personalize your word. And Lord, ask the question, what is God saying to me this morning? Father, I pray that you would be honored and glorified by the preaching and application of your word, and that, Lord, we would be people, even this week, as we walk away from the preaching of your word, that would be doers of your word and not merely hearers who are self-deceived. We ask you all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27 is our passage for this morning. Very excited about us understanding this particular text. Mark 12, 18 through 27. And if you're able to stand with me, please stand for the reading of God's Word, okay? In honor of God's Word. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. Hear the word of the Lord. Some Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children, and the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Go ahead and sit down. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. A survey was taken asking parents, what are the most funny, common, or curious questions that they've been asked by their kids, especially younger kids? One little girl, while turning her eyes inward, asks her mom, Mommy, why can't I see my eyes? 
Another dad says, once with a lizard in his hand, my five-year-old curiously asked me, Daddy, why don't humans have tails too? One mom says, when my daughter was born and we, and we brought my three-year-old boy into the delivery room, he gasped, asking, Mom, can we please put her back? I want a brother. <laughs> Gazing intently at the moon, a toddler curiously asks his dad, Daddy, is the moon made out of cheese? Growing up in a farm, one little girl once asked, Mommy, why do sheep and cows sleep standing up? I wondered the same thing when I was young. If you guys are honest, you would say you did as well, right? One little boy asked his mom with a skeptical sort of look, Mommy, is there really a man in the moon? This one many of you will really identify with right here. Once at a frequently visited restaurant by our family, my toddler loudly in the restaurant asked me, Daddy, why does Miss Fletcher, the waitress, have a mustache like you? I know. Thankfully, Miss Fletcher laughed, okay? Last one. At the family Christmas party, my little girl asks me in front of everyone, Mommy, why did you call my nana annoying in the kitchen? Think about it. There are others, and I'm not going to pile it on, on you. But suffice it to say that I'm sure you've had experiences, even as parents, that it's characteristic of children, isn't it, to ask cute and curious questions? I can think of so many, even growing up for my own kids, that were just cute, curious, uh, just things that we even wrote down to be able to remember some of the things that they said and asked. But in contrast, what we have here in this passage is totally the opposite. We don't have in this passage cute and curious questioning of our Lord Jesus. What we have are enemies of Jesus who are asking questions that are far from sincere, far from cute, and far from curious questions. What we see in the questioning of the religious leaders again and again are, are cunning questions designed to entrap Jesus, that they might indict him and that they might kill him later on that week. And we've seen these types of entrapping questions in the previous context, haven't we? As we walk through the Gospel of Mark, if you look back with me in chapter 7 and verse 5, for instance, Mark 7 and verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? There's a question there about Jesus' disconcern with the pharisaical legalistic rules, those extra biblical practices that they were imposing on other people, including Jesus and his disciples. Then look with me in chapter 10 and verse 2. Chapter 10 and verse 2. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. There's a question there about the lawfulness of divorce. And it wasn't an honest, sincere question because they really wanted to know. They wanted to entrap Jesus. Look at chapter 11 and verse 27. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? 
And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me. And of course, we looked at that passage and saw how Jesus answered them. But there's a a question there about Jesus' authority after his zealous actions in the temple and his monitoring of the, the activity of in the temple where the temple had become, rather than, than a center for worship, a circus of people selling merchandise and making money off of each other. And then look at chapter 12 and verse 13. And they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? There's a question there, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, about the tension between God and government. And they're asking a question because they know that that's a lightning rod issue in the culture of the day, of how God and government are to be juggled as they live in society, so to speak. And now what we have here in the passage that I read, verses 18 through 27, is yet another question by another enemy. And the question specifically comes in verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. There's a question given to us in verse 23, again, designed to entrap Jesus. And what I want us to do this morning, beloved, is see our Lord's gracious and yet again forthright response to his enemies, this time on the issue of the resurrection, even though that really wasn't the main point even of what they wanted to come and do with Jesus. They wanted to make him uh, look like a fool. They wanted to entrap him so that they might indict him and get him killed. And we're going to see how Jesus responds to them graciously but forthrightly. And along the way, I think we're going to learn some important lessons as to how we ought to be ministering not only to one another, but especially on mission in a lost world. You know, as elders and as pastors, we've been praying. And I know in in my prayers, I've been asking the Lord, Father, help us as a church, as individuals, as families, and as a church, that as we see the, the darkness of our culture, as we see things become even more and more bleak, that we would not see this time in our world as an opportunity to, to despair, but actually to, to seize upon the opportunity that we have to shine forth the beauty of Christ. Amen? The more bleak the situation, the more beautiful Christ is, beloved. Amen? So I want us to look at this text and learn some lessons as we walk through it, okay? We're going to look at it in three movements. Let's call the first one the perpetrators. The perpetrators in verse 18. Here's yet another group attacking our Lord. We've seen scribes. We've seen Pharisees. We've seen Herodians. We've seen other religious leaders, even followers and disciples of the religious leaders come and attack Jesus. And now, if you look at verse 18, we're told that some Sadducees, really, literally Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him. If you understand who the Sadducees were, they were the the smallest segment or group of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body, the supreme court of the Jews, so to speak. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, he says that the Sadducees were a minority group in number and never achieved the same overall popularity that the Pharisees enjoyed. The Pharisees were quite popular with the people, if you understand first century uh, history. They were very popular 
with the crowds, but the Sadducees were not so much very popular with the crowds. Not to be outdone, however, they were an elite group of the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, socially, professionally, and religiously. Socially, they were the aristocratic, most powerful, influential group of the Sanhedrin. Professionally, they were great businessmen, successful businessmen, who were very powerful, very rich. They were the high class of society, the Sadducees. And because of that, because they were very successful businessmen, they were religiously individuals who wielded great influence and power. They came to be the, the controllers of the temple in Judaism. The, the, they came to be uh, involved in, in the high priesthood. Many of them were former high priests or of the family of high priests. In fact, the Sadducees were primarily made up of the most influential Jewish families and made up of those high priestly families. So you might say that in essence, they were the who's who of the Jews with heavy religious pool and influence. You ask, what eventually happened to the Sadducees? History tells us that they all but disappeared in AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. We don't hear hardly anything about Sadducees anymore. But what's especially important for our understanding of this particular passage is what verse 1 says in this parenthetical statement, this commentary by Mark, that the Sadducees, if you notice in verse 1, say that there is no resurrection. Mark notes this one particular thing about them as a commentary for us to help us understand and see why or what was the particular point of contention with Jesus. In essence, they rejected life after death, these Sadducees. They rejected any notion of a resurrection of people. But that wasn't all. They rejected the supernatural. They rejected miracles, any existence of the soul, any future judgment. They rejected Satan. They rejected demons. And they rejected angels, according to Acts chapter 23, verse 8. They were the rationalists at their core. Those who put their their trust in their own human reason, these Sadducees. St. Clair Ferguson comments this, that the Sadducees rejected anything that they could not taste, smell, or touch with their own hands. While Christianity is a reasonable faith that has evidence, they made their human reason the ultimate authority. Reason was the name of the game for them. Finally, In contrast to the Pharisees, they rejected oral tradition. If you remember the Pharisees, as you know, elevated their own interpretations and they even added laws to God's law, to God's word. And it was called the oral oral tradition. They were always calling people to obey uh, when push came to shove their oral tradition above the scriptures themselves, God's Old Testament law. But to these Sadducees, they rejected the oral tradition of the Pharisees. In fact, the Pharisees were their arch rivals. What they cared about, these Sadducees, was the Pentateuch, the law of Moses, what we now know in our Bibles to be the first five books of the Old Testament. That alone, according to the the Sadducees, was authoritative scripture. And because, from their perspective, 
They couldn't find evidence in the Pentateuch about life after death. They viewed it solely as a doctrine that was a Pharisaical doctrine, a doctrine of the Pharisees, their arch rivals. And so they rejected life after death. You know, times haven't changed very much, have they? Isn't it so similar in our, in our culture that there are the rationalists like the Sadducees in our culture, in our day and age, who elevate human reason. Human reason is really their God with a little g. It's all about human reasons. Human reason. If you, can, if you cannot prove it to me, however I define that you prove truth, then I won't believe it. And there are people in our culture called skeptics who are always questioning everything, who are always doubting everything. Skeptics who, unless they can perfectly wrap their thinking and their minds around the Bible and truth, simply won't believe. Have you met some of those people? I have. Many of them. They simply won't believe. If you don't answer every intricate question and you don't answer every doubt in their hearts, you don't satisfy that. They won't believe. There are the so-called intellectuals, the scientific who no matter what degree of proof you give them, no matter what arguments you give them, they simply won't believe. Back in college, we would go on college campuses, engaging students and just discussing with them and asking them questions about the existence of God and related questions and so forth. And I remember just having a number of conversations where, where as I studied this passage, I was reminded of some of those conversations. And even over the years, And I'll never forget one particular um, gentleman, one young man who was going to the college. He was from India. He was a foreign exchange student. And he looked at me, having watched me from a distance, going around, walking around, asking questions and and interacting with other students about some of these things, the existence of God and so forth. And he wanted to get into a discussion. And he says, okay, prove it to me. Prove it to me that there is a God. So I'm thinking, man, this is great. The guy's asking Two and a half or so hours later, two and a half or so hours later, after evidence, after evidence, after opening up God's word to him and even giving him rational arguments and biblical evidence, he says to me, thanks, but I simply don't believe it. I simply don't believe it. And I said, that's your problem, my friend. Your problem is not a lack of evidence. Your problem is not that the Christian faith is irrational, as you stated. Your problem is that you simply won't believe. And that's what God will hold you accountable someday for. That you are unbelieving. And this was the problem with the Sadducees. In fact, look, consider second, the problem in verses 19 through 23. Their problem was that even with all of the evidence... They did not believe in life after death. Some of them had perhaps even heard just at least a couple of weeks earlier about Jesus having raised Lazarus from the dead. Some of them undoubtedly had heard about this and they simply wouldn't believe. That was their problem, these Sadducees. Their qualm was, again, this issue. And so they pose a a, a question to Jesus a dilemma to Jesus about this particular issue of the resurrection of the dead. And you say, but wait, why would they even do that? Ask about the resurrection. I thought that you said they don't believe in it. Exactly. You're right. They don't believe in this, but for the sake of argument, 
For the sake of argument, they are willing to grant the possibility of a resurrection to make Jesus look foolish and to get Jesus into trouble. So, here it goes. Supposing that there is life after death, here is their hypothetical scenario in verses 19 through 22, and then their question in verse 23. Look at verse 19. Teacher or rabbi. In other words, we respect you. We respect you. We want to hear from you. That's what rabbis and teachers, how they were addressed. It was a, a title of respect. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now you understand that the reference here to Moses is a reference to the one portion of the Old Testament that they believed in. And specifically, it's a reference to the Pentateuch, specifically Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. Why don't you go there? Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. Moses is preaching a series of sermons here, preparing the people for entrance into the promised land. And he's talking even here about loss pertaining to the way that they ought to treat one another. As a reflection of being a people set apart for the glory of God in the new land, this is how they had to treat one another. And Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5 says this. Here's one law. When brothers live together, that is in proximity to one another, in the same neighborhood, if you will, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother, assuming he's single, obviously, shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. The name of the deceased brother shall not be blotted out from Israel. This is the particular text that they are referencing. And it's regarding a law given here, that was designed, the intent of this law was designed to preserve the name of the deceased brother. And not only that, but to preserve the family inheritance of land and property and money and keep it in the family of the deceased brother. It was designed, this law, to keep the family line alive, to make sure that that inheritance would not be broken up. Imagine if you, for a whole lifetime or however many years you were alive, You had worked so hard to save up and make sure that you had a good family name and that you um, protected and provided for your family. And then you pass away. Wouldn't you want something in place that would make sure and ensure that your family would get that inheritance? Of course we would. And so this particular law here was designed to protect the family inheritance. It was called the Leveret Marriage Law, referring to a brother or the law of a marriage to a deceased husband's wife. It was a, a good law out of the kindness of, a, of the heart of a gracious God that had been given. And in fact, all of the Old Testament law was given by a gracious God for two primary purposes. You might put all of God's commandments and all of God's laws under two primary categories. An expression of, God, of, of our love for the Lord as we obey those commandments. Or secondly, an expression of our love for our neighbor. But have you noticed that with every single inquiry by religious leaders that come and attack Jesus, 
Do you ever hear these religious leaders or the Sadducees here mention anything about the intent of God's law, either vertical or horizontal towards their neighbors? Do you ever hear them frame their question within the context of God's goodness and God's kindness in giving his laws and his commandments? Of course not. They never, ever do that. Because all of these individuals, these Sadducees in this case, all they're concerned about is twisting the gracious provision of a kind God into an opportunity for controversy, to attack the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's their hypothetical scenario. Here's a proverbial curveball to get Jesus stuck in something. Look at verse 20. Here's their scenario. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died leaving no children. The second one married her and died leaving behind no children. And the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. Yikes! What a scenario, right? Just stop right there. I mean, man, seven marriages, seven dead. I mean, I'd be scared to marry this lady, frankly, okay? Right, guys? Man. As one husband or one guy has put it, it's apparent that she makes a killer dessert. Some of you didn't get it. Just wait for it. Wait for it. But poor lady as well. I mean, what are the chances of seven different men all being single, or six different men being being single, all brothers marrying this one woman, and not one of them gives this poor lady a son to carry on her first husband's name and the inheritance? These are six pretty pathetic brothers, right? I mean, but what are the chances? All that to say, one word in particular that I just kept thinking about as I studied this was ridiculous. What a ridiculous, bizarre, unrealistic, silly, all the words you can pile on top of that scenario to put forward. But see, this whole hypothetical and ridiculous scenario is only preparatory for their cunning question, isn't it? Look at verse 23. In the resurrection... When they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Again, remember, they reject life and death. But for the sake of argument, Jesus, right? This is their arrogant attempt to discredit him, to get him into trouble. We're granting the possibility of life after death. But just to show you how silly you are and how foolish this is, which one's wife will she be? For all seven married her. Notice that their silly question assumes, assumes that in life after death, all things will remain the same, right? That in life after death, or that life after death is merely a a continuation of our present earthly life. They had a very carnal, earthly perspective, even of this here. For the Sadducees, it was all about the here and now. All about the toys that we compile here on earth because they denied immortality. Don't we have so many people that live this way in our society? People that have no sense of, of, the, of what's going to happen after they die and, and realizing that there's going to be a coming judgment and they reject all of that. Or people who believe that once you die, it's done. Dead means dead, you're done There's nothing else after that. There are people who 
believe that what lives on is simply the legacy of one's family and maybe your greatest accomplishments. But then you're done. And nothing else happens after that. Your mark on the, in the world was simply your greatest accomplishments. And that's what people will remember you for. But that's it. That's it. That's like classic atheism, isn't it? Annihilationism. No life after death. Annihilationism. One writer comments insightfully that this was characteristic of Nietzsche and Marx, Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud, who claimed that hope in the resurrection, listen to this, hope in the resurrection stifles caring about the more serious matters of this life, end quote. How sad. How sad. And many of their followers have drank the Kool-Aid of such ideologies and live for the here and now only. Well, the Sadducees were, in essence, practical atheists, weren't they? Yeah, they would have given lip service to belief in God and belief in the Pentateuch and all of that. But really, practically speaking, they were practical atheists who believed that it was all done once they died here on earth, the first death. Well, next, the problem of their unbelief in a resurrection demands an answer, doesn't it? And I love how Jesus doesn't leave people in error. He gives them an answer, quite convincing answer. So consider third, the put-down. Consider third, the put-down in verses 24 through 27. Now to be sure, it's a gentle and gracious put-down, but it's a put-down nevertheless. And I want you to notice that Jesus does three things here as he, as he addresses them, as he responds to their inquiry. Three particular things. One, he calls out their error. Two, he exposes their ignorance. And then three, he corrects their thinking. And we're going to have those up on the, on the screen for you, okay? Except the third one, which you're going to have to add. He calls out their error. He exposes their ignorance. And he corrects their thinking here in the put-down, okay? Here's where we begin to learn from our Lord, as those on mission here in this world, how to engage people in our witness. So watch this. First, he calls out their error. In answer to their question in verse 23 about relationships in life after death, Jesus said to them in verse 24, Is this not the reason you are what? You are what, beloved? Mistaken? The sense is, you're deceived. You've wandered from the straight path. In our vernacular of today, Jesus is saying, you guys are in error. You guys are wrong. Wow. I mean, if Jesus was saying this today, he was physically present in our culture today. Some might say, well, with a sense of outrage, talk about lacking in cultural appropriateness. Right? Who does he think he is? That's not politically correct or socially correct, Jesus. Bad, bad guy. Why? Because telling the truth these days in our culture is not popular, is it, beloved? It is not popular in our secular culture to speak the truth in love. And you know what? Even that mentality, if we're not careful, can creep into churches where now we begin to drink the Kool-Aid of the culture and it's no longer good or loving to speak the truth in love. And we always have to be careful with that. 
As we said again and again, preacher after preacher, pastor after pastor in this pulpit, there is no real, authentic unity devoid of truth. Right? Amen? Without a standing for what's right, there is no unity. There is no peace in our world without people coming to grips with the truth of the word of God. Everybody's talking, peace, peace, peace. Listen, there is no peace. If people continue to reject the God of Scripture and His answer to the problem of human sin and rebellion, which is the cross of Christ. Amen? Beloved, in our witness today, listen to me. We would do well to learn something of what Jesus does here. He is gentle and gracious with them, perfect, blameless, even His approach. But He tells them the truth. Over and over again, the Lord doesn't tell people what they want to hear. He tells them what they, what? Need to hear. That's our Lord Jesus. He speaks the truth in love. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. We must do the same. Hear me, there's no virtue in leaving people in their error. There's no virtue in withholding the truth from people who are living in sin, who've turned their back on God in our society, even family members. There is no virtue in in allowing people to continue to pretend that God does not exist and He has no say in the way that they live. There's no virtue in that. We must be Christ-like both in how we say things with grace like Jesus and may God help us to do that for all of us fall desperately short of this. But beloved, listen to me. Like Jesus, we must be courageous and we must speak up about the things that we see in our world that are directly counter to the Word of God and what He says in His Word. Amen? With grace and gentleness, yes. Not in a holier-than-thou kind of way, because we too at one point were deceived. We too were spiritually dark at one point. And so as we remember that, then we can apply grace and gentleness, right? In the way that we approach them, but we must speak the truth. And we need God's courage and the power of His Spirit and His grace to be able to do that in a faithful manner. And so He's gentle, but He calls out their error. Secondly, notice He exposes their ignorance. He exposes their ignorance. Look at verse 24. Is this not the reason you are mistaken? And here it is. That you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God. What a put down. You do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God. I mean, just think about the latter. You don't understand. You don't get the power of God. How ironic Consider with me how ironic that the Sadducees affirmed the Pentateuch, which within it contained Genesis chapters 1 and 2, which tell about the the mighty, powerful creation of the universe by the word of God's power, ex nihilo, out of nothing, in a mighty act, and yet they do not affirm the resurrection. How deceived they were. That they would affirm that... And they wouldn't affirm life after death. But Jesus says, you know what your problem is? You don't understand the real meaning of the scriptures that you claim to adhere to. 
And Jesus is not saying by that, they don't know that they don't know chapter and verse, that they don't have Bible knowledge, that they can't quote Bible verse after Bible verse. What he's saying is, you don't understand what those scriptures mean by what they say. What they mean by what they say. Because there's a big difference, you see, between mere intellectual knowledge and true understanding. Between knowing Bible content and understanding what those scriptures mean by what they say in their context. As one of my mentors has often said, the meaning of the scripture is the scripture. Think about it. The meaning of the scripture is the scripture. It isn't enough to just know or quote Bible verses. You must understand what they mean, because if you don't understand what they mean, you won't be able to apply them to your life, right? You ask, well, can I have an example? I'm glad you asked. You may know Philippians 4.13. Anybody can quote it right off the bat? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Philippians 14, great verse. Great text of scripture. I love that verse. It's been so helpful to me in my Christian life. But I've heard false teachers say things like, folks, you can do all things. Anything that you set your mind on, you can do. You can reach your potential. Name it and claim it, baby. You can do all things. You can get all the money you want. All the fame you want, all the peace you want, all the happiness you want. You can do all things in Christ who strengthens you. I've heard false teachers preach that. Maybe you visited a church where you heard that kind of preaching. Or maybe you've listened to preachers like that. Or maybe you currently listen to preachers like that. Heaven forbid. Or maybe you've read false books that promote this kind of self-empowering kind of ideology, the power of self-motivation, or reaching your maximum potential, looking within for the inner power of the soul that's going to allow you to live life in such a way apart from God, victoriously. At the top of the list, I'll just name some individuals. And you know me. Over the years, I will name and call out false teachers. Amen? I think we're called to do that. But it makes me think of Joyce Meyer. Joyce Meyer. That maybe some of you listen to. She's a heretic. Joel Olstein. I really hope that you guys don't think he's a solid guy. Joel Olstein. Kenneth Copeland. Joseph Prince. I mean, the list goes on and on and on of false teachers who are leading people astray. These individuals. I've also heard people referencing this verse, such as wannabe athletes, emphasis on the wannabe part, quoting the Bible, I can do all things. Nuh-uh. No, you can't. You can't dunk like Michael Jordan. Maybe in your dreams. I've dreamt that many times. It never happened in real life. In fact, I never even dunked. Man, I wasn't going to confess that one, but. You can't pitch like Clayton Kershaw. You can't do all things in that sense. Want to be athlete. Not everyone can throw a ball like Tom Brady. I mean, that guy seems like he's going to throw the football all the way until he's 100 years old. Is he ever going to retire? But he keeps winning Super Bowls, right? But I've heard want to be athletes 
throw that verse around out of context to say they can do anything. You see, you may know the verse by memory and even quote it in those examples, but that's not what that verse means in its context, right? Context is king. You've heard pastor after pastor teach that from this pulpit and the little pulpits around the church. Say it with me, beloved. Context is king. Don't ever forget that. Context is king. And that verse, Philippians 4.13, appears within a context, a larger section in Philippians 4.10-19, within this larger section where Paul is speaking about God having taught him contentment, that Christ is enough in all circumstances. That's the broader context. Christ is enough. And Paul says, in both prosperity, when I've had a lot and the Lord's provided a lot, and in poverty, when I've lacked what I've needed, God has taught me to be content. I am happy in Christ. Jesus is enough in the area of material possessions. First and foremost, right? That's what it means in its context. In other words, Christ has taught me that he's enough, that in him I have everything I need. I am content in Jesus now, the principle, of course, listen, could also apply to all of life, not just material possessions, that Christ is enough. There's always one meaning to a text, but many applications, right? And implications. One meaning to a text with many implications and applications. So we might say that the text does apply by way of principle in my suffering That in my suffering, Christ is enough and that he gives me the strength that I need to endure well under my suffering and my trials. I can live victoriously under my trials. I am content in Jesus. Christ is enough. In my parenting, Christ is enough and that he gives me the wisdom that I need to lovingly and diligently shepherd my children, parent. Christ is enough. Amen? In a difficult work environment, Christian, God gives you what you need to endure joyfully and be a faithful witness for Christ in that environment. Jesus is enough. And so certainly that passage has application and implications for all of those areas of life. But do you see why it's important for you and I to rightly interpret and rightly understand Scripture by paying attention to context and by careful observation? Do you see that? Because you could be led astray by false teachers. And we certainly don't want that as your shepherds here, elders and pastors. As one mentor said as well, a text without a context is a pretext. A text without a context is a pretext. That's true. And so listen, while I'm at it, on that note, this is why to help you be diligent exegetes and students of God's word, we encourage every single one of you to be and take and partake of one of our great Bible studies during the week. Talking about the year of discipleship. We want to help you rightly divide, cut straight the truth, to help you understand the true meaning of Scripture. Plug in if you're not plugged into a small group. There should be no reason why after this and some fellowship outside, all of you should not be in some fellowship group or student ministries after, after this particular service. Every single one of you. And then the midweek men's and women's small groups that we have. 
All of those are contexts where, where you're getting into the word, wrestling with the meaning of the word, and then talking about implications and application for your life, where you're thinking about God and, and the gospel and your sin and being convicted about things that you need to let go of and put on the mind of Christ and so forth and so forth. You need, beloved, to be in those contexts. You cannot live like an island. You must get involved. You must plug in. You say, Pastor Kempis, what in the world does all of this have to do with the text? Well, in the case of the Sadducees, think about it. As in the case of all of the other religious leaders that we've seen in the Gospels, these individuals had a lot of head knowledge, a lot of data in their heads, a lot of factual information which is needed, and we do need knowledge first and foremost, but they had wrong interpretations, and thus they had gone astray, right? And they were leading people astray because of their wrong interpretations of Scripture. They gave lip service all that they wanted. They could give all lip service to, we, we adhere to the Pentateuch, but they didn't know what they were talking about. And Jesus is exposing that here. He's exposing their ignorance. So being the gracious Lord that He is, He calls out their error, exposes their ignorance. And thirdly, this is not in the, on the PowerPoint, but you need to add this. He corrects their thinking. He corrects their thinking. Write that down. Look at verse 25. For, that little connecting word indicates Jesus' explanation. Okay? Why are they mistaken? For, verse 25, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Oh, man, this is a good explanation by our Lord. He's a master teacher. The greatest one ever. He corrects their thinking by making two assertions. Exposing their heart unbelief. First assertion. Notice, he asserts the reality of changed relationships in the next life. The reality of changed relationships. You know what your problem is, Sadducees? You're assuming that everything will remain the same, that the next life is merely a continuation of the present life. You are mistaken. You're wrong yet again. And notice that when he says that people will be like angels in heaven, pay attention to the key word there. He's not saying that they will become angels. What's he saying? That they will be like angels. In other words, like angels, we will, have, we will be eternal, no su- longer subject to physical death. Like angels, we who have trusted in Jesus will no longer cohabit, reproduce, or have exclusive marriage and family relationships. In heaven, there aren't any more marriage ceremonies as we know them. In heaven, dads will not give any longer their daughters to that Filthy animal of a guy. Sorry, guys. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Just messing. But that's how a lot of dads feel. Amen, guys? They're nice guys, but, you know, hard to imagine all of this. Hard to imagine all of this, but this is what our Lord says. Question, will I know my spouse or other Christians? Sure. Not spiritual amnesia up there. I will forget everything. But the best way to think of it is this. We will know one another perfectly 
And in your perfect, glorified state, Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus, you will be your best version, perfectly lovable, perfectly likable, perfectly communable. Is that even a word? Communable. You will exist in perfect relationships with other people. Perfect friendships. How glorious. Think about this. For those of us who have put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have put your trust in the Savior, there will be no more sin in heaven. Hmm. No more evil thoughts, sinful intentions, wrong motivations, misplaced priorities, bitterness in the heart, unforgiveness, no more suffering, no more aches and pains, No more physical disabilities. No more conflict with one another. No more division. Sounds pretty sweet, huh? That's amazing. Heaven is a real place to look forward to, isn't it? And so upon closer examination, Jesus says, your question about marriage and so forth is irrelevant in the light of changed relationships in life after death. It's a moot point. It doesn't apply. You assume that life after death is no different than here on earth, but you are, verse 24, mistaken. You are wrong. You are in error. And of course, that's all they cared about. They cared about the here and now. It's all about self-preservation for these Sadducees. It's all about personal safety. It's all about accumulating all of the toys that they could possibly accumulate in the here and now. Isn't that the way many people live today, beloved? And that if we're not careful, we as Christians can become fixated with the things of this world and live that way as well. It's all about self-preservation. It's all about safety for us. Now, granted, we should not live irresponsibly and recklessly, But it's not about self-preservation and safety and security. That's not how God calls us to live. Live responsibly, but don't live in fear. Don't live for the here and now. We should pause here to be reminded that in the light of eternity, we we shouldn't put so much stock, beloved, on the things of the world. In 1 John chapter 3, We're called and exhorted and commanded, do not love the world, neither the things in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And then he says in 1 John 3, 17, the world is passing away. And also it's lust, it's evil desires. But the one who does the will of God, abides forever. Forever. What does it mean to do the will of God according to that verse, by the way? It means first and foremost, if you're not in Christ, if you haven't given your life to Christ, if you haven't been reconciled to God, it is the will of God that you be saved from your sins. It is God's will that you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who paid for your sins on the cross. That's the will of God. And for us who are in Christ, 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. In other words, remember that you are not of this world. You are an alien and a stranger Christian. Therefore, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. You're not of this world. 
In the light of eternity, we shouldn't live that way. As if it's all about the here and now. Accumulating as much as we can. Being as successful as we can be for our own purposes. For our own name. Rather than for the name of Jesus. And for His exaltation. That's why Colossians 3.1 says... And following, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Then he says, set your mind or fix your mind on the things above where Christ is. All this to say we should cultivate a heavenly mindset, which is the opposite of what these individuals, these Sadducees had. And listen, in the here and now, lest you hear different with regard to our relationships, with regard to our marriages, with regards to our children, our goal should be to be absolutely, by the grace of God, faithful here on earth. Amen? Faithful. We should be diligent to disciple and train our children and above all, point them to the Lord Jesus as their only hope. We should proclaim the good news of the gospel to them that there is a God who saves sinners through Jesus Christ. We should be absolutely faithful to those things, but may we never, ever, ever, even with our precious families, treat them as an idol and commit the sin even of family olatry. Where we idolize Family, where we idolize marriage. Listen, marriage, according to 1 Peter 3, 7, is a grace of life. It's a gift of God. But so is singleness. So is singleness. Both are a grace of life. And even human marriage is not an end in itself. It's ultimately a picture of the forever marriage of Christ and His church, His redeemed people, right? Even marriage on earth isn't an end in itself. That's an implication of what we're looking at right now. Let us not live for the here and now. And can I just say this? Speaking of marriage and how things are going to be in the resurrection, those of you who are single, can I just say to you, don't idolize marriage. It is good and righteous with pure motives and a sanctified sense to desire to be married if you're single, young, or older. Don't worship marriage. As if you need to get married for it, for you to now feel complete. That only if you get married to that particular person, whoever they are in the present or in the future, they will complete you. Lie from hell. It ain't going to happen. The only one who can fulfill you, the only one who can satisfy you is who? King Jesus. He's the only one. Listen, there is nothing magical that happens at the altar one day, when you stand in front of that spouse, where all of a sudden something turns on, a light, a switch turns on, and all of a sudden you learn to be content. If you are not content now, happy in Christ, living as if Jesus is enough, it will not just happen when you get married. You're going to make your spouse miserable. I'll tell you that right now. I've counseled many a people who at the core, it's an issue of love for the Lord and love for each other, but also one of the big things is they, they went into marriage thinking that that spouse was going to fulfill all of their needs, and that is not what your spouse is there for. They can never do that. Only Christ satisfies. Only Christ is enough. And so single person, young or older, cultivate a heart of contentment in the Lord now. Amen? Cultivate a heart of contentment in Him now. 
And so as Jesus corrects her thinking, he asserts the reality of changed relationships. Notice he also asserts the fact of life after death. Look closely at verse 25 with me. Look at verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, he says. Notice, when. Not if there's a resurrection. Not in case they rise from the dead. But verse 25 says, when they rise from the dead. Emphasizing the, the certainty of life or de- and death. The fact of life after death. He further asserts the certainty of a resurrection. Notice in verse 26, by going to Scripture, as the Lord always does, doesn't he? What does the Scripture say? Let's go to the Scriptures. Verse 26, but regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses? Man, what a put down, huh? What a gentle but clear put down. Haven't you read, you ignoramuses? Haven't you been paying attention? I mean, these are the religious elite. They should know better. But they don't. Have you not read verse 26 in the passage about the burning bush? What passage is that? It's a reference to Exodus chapter 3, where after 40 years of living in the wilderness, after he had fled from Pharaoh in Egypt, God speaks to Moses and commissions him in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. God spoke to Moses, it says there, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, says Jesus. Man, this is good stuff. Watch this. What our Lord is saying is that when God spoke to Moses in Exodus 3, he spoke in the present tense, didn't he? I am their God. I am. And when God said this in Exodus 3, Remember, all three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were already dead. God said to Moses, I am present tense their God. Not back, I was back then when those guys were alive. I am their God. Implication, they are alive, aren't they? He's in relationship with them in the present and exists in ongoing communion and relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Boy, that's true, beloved, for every person who repents and puts their trust in Jesus. As 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, if you put your faith in Jesus, to be absent from the body, i.e. you die, is to be present with the Lord. Isn't that awesome? That's our hope. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we who are in Christ, who pass away physically from this world, we are instantly present with the Lord. What hope. What joy. Notice how he further confirms that this is what he's saying in verse 27. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Consequently, he says, you are, read it with me, greatly mistaken. Greatly mistaken. For you Sadducees to reject life after death is to be greatly deceived is what Jesus is saying. Back in verse 24, he said, you are mistaken. Here in verse 27, he says, you are greatly mistaken or deceived about relationships in heaven, but you are greatly mistaken or deceived about your rejection and unbelief with regards to life after death. Why does he say that? Because the Lord knows. He's going to rise from the dead just a few days later. And they're going to reject Jesus' resurrection. And in that, they're going to show their deception, right? They are deceived. And there's no hope for them. They're greatly mistaken. I often wonder if, upon hearing this, we don't know from the text of Scripture, 
if some of those individuals actually that were there listening to this particular instance, if they actually believed, and later on they remembered some of this upon his resurrection, we'll never know until we get to heaven. Can I ask you this morning, can Jesus say of you today that you are greatly mistaken? Would the Lord say that of you today? Because of your unbelief, that you are living in a state of deception, in a state of rebellion against God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, this passage is surely a warning to you to no longer be deceived. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture is very clear about the fact of life after death and that instantly when you physically die, you can be sure that you will stand before God in judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed for men or women to die once, speaking of the first death here on earth, and after this comes judgment. We can be sure not only of death, that it will come to all of us, but that we will stand before God. In Matthew 25.46, Jesus references a judgment of both the unrighteous and the righteous, of both the unjust and the just. One day, says our Lord, we will stand before God, and these, the unrighteous, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Eternal punishment, we know, biblically, is a place called hell. I know that that's becoming more and more unpopular, even in so-called solid pulpits across our country. Guys are jumping ship and no longer preaching hell. Listen to me. Hell is a real place. A real physical place where people will forever and ever and ever who have rejected God's provision for the forgiveness of their sins in Christ will experience God's eternal wrath forever and ever and ever as a reminder of the holiness of God and the severity of their sin and the fact that they rejected King Jesus. Hell is real. It's a real place. So which one are you today? Which one are you today? Are you the unrighteous who is living in rebellion against God? You hate God. You're indifferent to God. You're trying to please God by your own good works. Or are you the righteous? Not righteous in yourself, for there is none righteous but the one who has been clothed in the righteousness of Christ by faith in King Jesus. Which one are you this morning? Listen to John 3.36 where Jesus says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. You know what eternal life is? It's not only quality of life, but it's quantity of life in God's presence forever and ever and ever. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will live even if he dies. Do you believe this? He asked. And that would be the question for you this morning. That's the life-changing question for some of you to answer this morning. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? If you do, put your trust in Him. Follow after Jesus. Well, how ironic, isn't it? 
that the very problem of these religious leaders, the resurrection, was going to be the very thing that Jesus was going to prove just five days later, that he would rise from the dead after three days of being buried. How amazing. He would rise from the dead. Beloved, that we who are in Christ will also rise one day with him. Amen? No longer experiencing sin, death, sickness, pain, and all of those things. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that day. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for the fact that Christ is risen indeed and that our hope is in him. Father, as I think about this text, I think about our mission as well. That, Lord, you still have us here in this world. Help us also to not be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. But that, Lord, our heavenly mindedness as an application of this passage would lead us all the more to want to see that choir in heaven growing as far as it depends on us by sharing Christ with people, the risen, exalted Christ. Father, help us to be faithful to our mission. Help us to not be passive and complacent Christians. Help us to know that there's a risen Jesus who is returning. And Lord, we want to see more people come to worship this one and be in that place in Revelation where they are singing Glory to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.